Hello and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and as usual, I am joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hey, everybody. Also joining us today is David Valancourt, our resident good manufacturing practices expert and CEO founder of the GMP Collective. Hello, David. Hey, Jehan. Good to see everybody. Nice to see you too, Dave. Uh, also joining us again, Dr. Deb Kimlis, a trained anesthesiologist and CMO for PG Pharma. When she's uh, not busy helping run clinical trials with cannabis products, she likes to join us on the show. Hello, Deb. Hey, everyone. And joining us for the first time, we're really excited to have Dr. Ethan Russo, founder and CEO of Credo, a neurologist with 25 years experience in cannabis therapeutics. He has also done an 11 year stint with GW Pharmaceuticals as their senior medical advisor and helping develop Sativex and Epidiolex. He has also served roles in different uh, scientific societies, including as the past ICRS president. Welcome, Ethan. Greetings, good to be here. Thank you. So we have a great show for you, listener. Uh, for our popular science article, we're going to discuss a interesting patent on comfy couches and things like holding hands in the psychedelic space. We'll also discuss uh, Jazz purchasing GW Pharmaceuticals for $7 billion and, and some of the issues around that. And we'll end our uh, popular science discussion with a story about psychedelic fauna, such as toads being pushed to their limits. Our science discussion for Rapid Fire Science will discuss a, a commentary on uh, innovative research designs for cannabis and health research, and also a comparison of cannabinoids and psychedelics in immunotherapy, uh, sort of balancing out which one is safe to use and which one has uh, more risks. And as usual, we'll end with a game. Uh, today, David Valancourt will play Where's Valancourt? And we'll try to figure out what product he was looking at in what state and we'll be right back after a short break And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show. And away we go. So according to vice.com, uh, a recent patent uh, patents the basics of psychedelic therapy. This organization, Compass, who we have talked about in a previous episode, and if you want background on this nonprofit turned pharma company, please check out our episode Clash of the Psychedelics. But basically, it looks like they are patenting some very basic things. Um, in layman's terms, they're finally found a way to make a profit off of hippie beanbags uh, because they are looking at patenting comfy chairs, things like therapists holding hands or touching, uh, having a good sound system, some really kind of the basics of psychedelic therapy. So, you know, Dr. Kimless, you know, you're a trained anesthesiologist. I, I can't imagine in anesthesiology there being patented methods of administering certain things or treatments, but maybe you could shed some light on, on the good or the bad here with patenting, um, you know, 
basic sort of uh, treatment parameters, protocols. You know, I, I just imagine in the operating room, you know, transferring a patient from a bed to, to the operating table is patented. And every time we do that, we would have to, you know, pay for that technique of physically moving someone or actually, you know, wearing a glove. So I, I was uh, kind of blown away by this article. You know, that is a really good point. And, and I think that it's very reminiscent, you know, if someone's having a, a, a bad trip, to put it mildly, and a clinician or health professional has to comfort them or move them. Yeah, do they have to pay uh, a dollar to the company that patented comforting someone who's having a bad trip? It's a little bit ridiculous. So um, one thing I want to throw out there is a quote is uh, from the articles, quote, there's not that many patents in the queue right now. There might be 100 for psychedelics, but there's going to be around 5,000 in three years if I had to make a guess, said this lawyer who specializes in IP property and also has a PhD in biochemistry. Um, you know, Ethan, Dr. Russo, you know, you've been around the cannabis space a while. You've seen some of the patents I've assumed that have been out there. Does this surprise you? Does it remind you of anything in the cannabis space? What thoughts do you have? Well, they're different parallels, uh, but again, um, to me, uh, patents are a double-edged sword. My feeling is you can't patent a species. I'm not sure you can patent a technique that's been in use for decades. I'm very familiar with the psychedelic literature going back into the 50s when before prohibition on uh, making schedule one of all the psychedelics, there was a great deal of therapy that went on. Uh, additionally, you have group like, groups like MAPS and other groups uh, that have engaged in uh, harm reduction at raves or uh, at festivals. Uh, they've been doing these things forever. So I think that some of these patents may be eminently challengeable. Okay, good point. Um, Thank you, Ethan. Uh, Nigam, you know, you've worked a lot in the formulation space for the industry. You know, as we say, products in the commercial market in the United States. Is this surprising to you? Do you think, you know, cannabis companies will soon follow suit and patent like, uh, you know, whatever aluminum foil wrapped around cannabis is now a patented delivery method? Um, what, what are your thoughts here? So, uh, yeah, I've got a few. So just like reading another quote like you were Jahan. so one of the claims they're making is a room with a substantially non-clinical appearance it's like okay that's <laughs> there's a lot of rooms out there that are going to fall into this category um so that's a little bit rough but yeah so far as um product development and, and trying to protect your ip i i think it's kind of what other folks on the show are saying is it, it's almost inappropriate it it's really kind of like a nonsensical thing to be trying to patent these methods and i won't be redundant i think um deb and ethan said it really well um one thing that i did think was uh interesting about this though was like they were explaining how patent law works and how there's a reason they're doing this, right? So why are they throwing all these claims out? Um, and, and if, uh, like you said, on Clash of the Psychedelics, we reviewed um, the thing with Compass and USONA, and they had to file it three different times to get it through, and they had a lot of claims cut off. So they were explaining in this article that this is actually a tactic that some patent attorneys will use where they're piling things on in hopes and prayers that 
uh, one will slip through. So maybe they don't get the substantially non-clinical room <laughs> patented, but maybe they get the beanbag patented. And now you have to buy the, you know, the the beanbag from, um, you know, some certain company to <laughs> do your psychedelic therapy. So I see, I see Ethan laughing in the background. Yeah, it's pretty silly, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I would just add, uh, you know, patents, they need to be truly novel. And with respect to cannabis and other plants, um, it should be something that has not occurred in nature. So, for example, if someone does selective breeding um, to develop a high uh, CBC chemovar, can cannabichromine is usually not around very much. It's uh, born of a recessive gene. Uh, unlike THC and CBD, that kind of thing, yeah, that may well be patentable, but it, you can't patent cannabis. And uh, related to the psychedelics, there was an effort by some company years ago to patent ayahuasca, neglecting the fact that indigenous people have used it for thousands of years. That's just uh, repulsive and indefensible. I agree, Ethan. And you know, David, I'm sure maybe you've seen some offensive things doing assessments. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I would imagine that some people would be so protective of their IP, they wouldn't welcome GMP into their facility. Um, but would you like to share some thoughts on, on this article from Vice? Uh, yeah, you know, to that point, it's, it's interesting to go into facilities. And I try to be very careful because, I, you know, people put a lot of time and effort and, you know, uh, kind of the, their passion into these things. But, um, you know, to say that it's their IP is, is quite an interesting situation I, you know, I walk in, I see something and they're like, oh, you can't tell, you can't share the secret sauce on how we've made this CBD isolate. And I'm like, I've seen like a dozen that are pretty much the same damn thing. And oh, there's a patent about that as well. So this is not like rocket science. Do you have a chemistry degree? All right, you got this. Um, you know, and the, the one thing I wanted to say too, you know, pulling, there was a really good quote in there that I think play, um, builds off of to Ethan's point. Um, and they talk about how the patent office didn't have the training resources or tools to find prior art in the space. And this is going back to the, I believe, 50s and 60s. Um, because people selling, for example, pet food online wasn't necessarily published in scientific journals. And it wasn't showing up in earlier patents because it was a new field. That's right, that was related to like the dot-com era and the boom. So, you know, again, back to the prior art and can you patent a species, like the patent office, they're, they're not a bunch of biochemists with PhDs sitting around really understanding this. So without the right training, um, we get these uh, lawyers who get to express their creativity. They've probably been stuck in a square box going through law school and they're like, sweet, how crazy can we go? Um, where's the limit, right? And and here we are. And will it stand up? That's a that's another story. It's, it's really unfortunate to see this, but um, this is the creativity at, at play, I guess. Oh, thank you so much, David. So listener, if you want to look up this study, it's in the show notes and it's entitled, Can a Company Patent the Basic Components of Psychode Psychedelic Therapy from vice.com? We're going to move on to a much anticipated discussion. Uh, recently, it was announced that Jazz Pharmaceuticals is to acquire GW Pharmaceuticals, which could create a very kind of high growth global you know, leader with a good neuroscience portfolio, uh, maybe really seeing that some of the cannabis-based products that GW has, work, has worked on and Ethan has worked on becoming blockbuster drugs in the future. 
uh, there are a lot of questions around this. I mean, is this a, it seems like $7 billion is not a lot of money for the potential of GW. I could be wrong there, you know? So I'm wondering, is this a good deal or a bad deal for GW or Jazz? Or is this like a workaround to the UK's Brexit export issues that, you know, makes some people a lot of money because everything going on in the UK, it might make sense for GW to be owned somewhere else. Um, Ethan, I'm about to say to you the two things you should never ask of a scientist or researcher, and that's what do you think and take as much time as you'd like to respond. <laughs> well, this is tough coming very close to home. Uh, prior to working full time for GW, I was also associated as an advisor for the prior five years, dating to 1998, the year that the company began. Um, during the whole time I was there, there was always the prospect that they'd be taken over, but uh, it didn't happen. I think that traditional pharma companies still don't understand botanical medicine or cannabis per se. Uh, many of the bigs, uh, the bigger companies, uh, had cannabinoid programs with new chemical entities that didn't pan out, either didn't work or had disastrous associated adverse events, uh, and most have abandoned their cannabinoid programs. Now, I, I hope that this is going to lead to further interest in the space, but that can go two ways. It can go with the GW approach, which is cannabis-based, either isolates as Epidiolex or extracts as Sativex, uh, or it can go in terms of isolates made from yeast or uh, less interesting to me or new chemical entities that are based on cannabinoids. Uh, so semi-synthetics and totally synthetics. Um, I think a mistake is always made when one echelon of the industry thinks that they can uh, dominate or eliminate the others. Um, there are enough people interested in this area that there will be efforts in all of these. Um, my personal bias is uh, towards the botanical route. Um, I don't think it's possible for a single agent, whether an isolate or a new chemical entity to reproduce uh, the entourage effect and create the synergies that are presented by a well-constituted cannabis extract. Um, and uh, yeah, that's my firm belief. Yeah, I, sure, I took pharmacology uh, with all the other physicians, but uh, uh, I've come around to this position and at least I'll say this much, that's where I wanna put my efforts. I'm not interested in the semi-synthetics or new chemical entities. Thank you, Ethan. You know, I want to go to David and get kind of his response to your your comments, Ethan, because you know David spends a lot of time at, at U.S. cannabis facilities these days, and you know I'm sure he's maybe aligned a little bit on the you know single entity, new entity versus whole plant products. But with David, uh, share some of your thoughts. Yeah, you know I've uh, been, I've been privileged to get to meet a couple of the, you know, GW Pharma folks through my work, um, both with ASTM's Cannabis uh, you know, Standards Committee and, and other places. And there's a big miss, I don't know if misunderstanding is the right word, but, you know, we see this $10 billion medical market that's kind of cropped up overnight in the U.S. space. And, you know, what does medical really mean? And, of course, there is a bridge between, you know, 
not having to spend $2.5 billion to go through the clinical trial process, all for an API, right? A single component, as Ethan's talking about, you know, pure CBD or CBC or what have you. Um, and it's a really, there's a really tough, there, there isn't a well-established framework for how to go through the, the drug process. It's, it's complicated with statistics and whatnot to have this multi-component product. I think GW's done a really good job with that. And uh, it's, it's been frustrating, but enlightening to see a lot of folks. And I've seen a few companies, you know, multi-state operators and otherwise, where they're like, yeah, we're going to go into clinical trials and we've got this. And I, I've literally seen a chief science officer, you know, 20 year, you know, medical director at other places working at hospitals and oncology. And as part of these trials, literally walk out onto the CEOs, you know, walk to the CEO, like three weeks in, walk out and say, here's my letter of resignation. Call me in 18 to 24 months when maybe you have your stuff together. And we can talk then. Like the the idea of we're here when we're really down here is just it runs rampant. And then, you know, there the FDA has put out some guidelines right on botanical drug development. Um, and I, I'm curious where Ethan kind of sees that playing in terms of the medical market that we've created versus the GW pharmaceutical grade model um, as it plays into you know acquisitions in the future of the industry. Uh, well, I guess I've been invoked. Um, boy, I have a lot of thoughts about uh, what you've said, some very provocative ideas. Um, yeah, it, it's a situation in which, um, uh, you know, I, I have to be very critical. I do not think that any randomized controlled trials to date have been performed with what I would consider optimized extracts. Um, I, I, and I regret to say this, but it includes uh, the products made by my former company. <laughs> um, you know, there's a problem in that. Uh, okay, so I came on full time in 2003. Uh, at that time, I became more familiar with the exact contents of Sativex, and I didn't think it was optimized. And I uh, had said that I thought it was time for a Sativex 2.0. But at that point, the formula of Sativex had been set for three years and it had been in initial clinical trials and basically the jig was up already. Um, but um, you know, when a drug is approved, frequently there'll be a reformulation at some point. Uh, there's always that possibility. Uh, another major problem is that I think most extractions have been done improperly. Uh, and I won't go into detail, but I uh, have some ideas about how to do it better that would be truer to the contents of the plant as is. Uh, also, we've got a huge problem with squandering monoterpenoid content uh, through various extractions. And um, again, if you're a believer in the entourage effect and synergy of different components, you wanna keep uh, what the plant produced um, ideally instead of getting down to the quote, active ingredient, which is uh, generally a misnomer uh, in relation to any botanical. Uh, another example outside of cannabis is ginkgo. Um, some years ago, there was one component of ginkgo biloba that was used in France to treat septic shock, but they found it didn't work as well as the extract. So, uh, you know, what do you do? Do you go with uh, the one item that you can market as a drug or do you go with what actually works best? 
which was uh, the crude extract uh, or uh, more refined extract of the plant. Thank you, Ethan. Now we, we've heard from, you know, two guys and their thoughts, but, you know, let's find out what's really going on. Uh, Dr. Kimless, um, share us some insight in, in your responses to, you know, some of the things that we're discussing and, and to this announcement. So it, one is kind of surprising because I certainly was shocked at the number. I mean, far be it for me to think that, a, you know, anything with the letter B is a, a low number, but but seven billion just seemed undervalued, and I was quite shocked at that number. I would have thought that there would have been a, a zero or two or something along with that number. So I'm curious as to how they even came up with that valuation, because when you are looking at um, these valuations for just a a regular cannabis company, people think they're hugely valued in in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and here you've got you know that that lucky gold card that lucky gold, golden ticket that allows you to sell across state line and across country with uh, FDA approval. And so I was sort of shocked at, at that. Um, back to the botanical guidance, you know, uh, Ethan, I hate to target you, but what are your thoughts about, about the, how cumbersome, you know, that is in relation to what the FDA actually wants, which is single drug, single target? Well, yeah, I mean, that's where they're most comfortable, but the FDA botanical guidance is actually just a blueprint on how to do it. How do you make a pharmaceutical from a plant? And the bottom line is mostly there isn't a big difference. You need to prove safety, efficacy, and consistency. Now, the hooker in this is with the botanical, when you're dealing with multiple components, is the consistency that comes into the chemistry, manufacturing and control aspect of the FDA. And a lot of companies are just totally intimidated by this. But believe me, it has been done. It will be done again in the future. Even though Sativex isn't approved in the US because it worked in the American subspecies, but not in much sicker Eastern European patients uh, for intractable opioid-resistant cancer pain, the fact is that the chemistry manufacturing and control was well-established. In other words, they had shown uh, the vast majority of what the components were on the GCMS of Sativex extracts and the consistency over time. I have a slide I sometimes show uh, 25 batches of Sativex over nine years and it looks like single peaks because the variance is so low. Um, so, you know, in Europe with a lot of herbal medicines, they accept a plus minus 10% uh, range on any component. Um, they either have or are trying to lower that to 5%. Um, that was actually much tighter than that uh, for Sativex. Um, so uh, again, I know how this was done. Uh, GW knows how this is done. I'm sure that there are other companies that can do it. Uh, again, with different extraction techniques, it's possible to have all the good stuff and lose some of the extraneous stuff um, and uh, make the process a little bit cleaner. Um, so I have absolute confidence that this can be done. That doesn't mean it's not intimidating. 
uh, for companies that aren't familiar with the techniques. Um, but uh, again, uh, there should be other entities trying to go this route uh, because in the end, I am absolutely confident uh, that it's gonna be the most fruitful in terms of uh, effective and safer medicines. Thank you, Ethan. Um, you know, what I'm hearing is it takes time, patience, and good data collection. Uh, so before we go on to talking about the uh, Sonoran toad being pushed to maybe extinction, Nigam, I want to give you a chance to maybe share and redeem yourself for all those years you spent squandering monoterpenes while extracting cannabis products. Um, you know, I tease, I tease, but uh, I'm, I'm, you know, as a chemist, a classically came, trained chemist, I'm interested to get your perspective on what, what you're hearing. Yeah, I, um, I would like to say that I personally have squandered much less terpenes than GW Pharma. I'm fairly confident. <laughs> so that's, you know, something. Um, yeah, so, uh, you know, really enjoying listening to uh, everyone give their, their you know, perspective. It's obviously Ethan having, you know, worked at this company. Dave being, you know, GMP expert in the space. You know, Deb obviously has, you know, expertise working in the cannabis pharmaceutical space. So one thing... Um, you know, you know, as a chemist, to answer your direct question, it, it's hard because, uh, well, I, it, it's hard this this line between what Ethan's saying about the um, full spectrum, the the use of the botanical with all the useful molecules. I personally am also a believer in that. I practice that. I'm favor that over any pharmaceutical. But um, on the flip side, as a, a as you said, classically trained organic and analytical chemist. I do kind of also see this uh, beauty and this usefulness of, you know, refining uh, molecules to a certain point. But to loop back to Ethan's comments and Dave's comments, it's all about the quality, the consistency, the stability over time, the usefulness to the to the human in the end. And that's really the, the most important thing. I'll say it again, the usefulness to the human in the end. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of validity to what Ethan's saying about there may be a better route to help people than, you know, this single molecule API or this like, you know, even if they are like blending or doing some ratio, it's not, there's, it seems kind of silly to cut out all these other useful molecules that, that were already there. So um, I wanted to cap with one other thing and, and just, uh, and actually get Ethan's uh, opinion on it. I mean, obviously he's the he's the most popular guy on this topic. But in the uh, in the article, uh, I'm just going to read a line. It says, "The collective Jazz and GW team will bring highly complementary expertise to a pro forma pipeline of 19 clinical development programs across neuroscience, oncology, sleep, epilepsy, movement disorders, psychiatry, hematology, and solid tumors." So my thought, my question is, Ethan, what do you think about that? Is that, is that, is that going to happen? Are they going to apply GW's, you know, know-how or their use of legal, legally grown cannabis and legally extracted cannabis in the FDA pipeline to, to tackle these issues? Do you see promise there? Uh, yeah, promise. It, it remains to be seen whether it'll be fulfilled. Uh, my fear uh, that I am willing to express is that. Uh, a lot of possibilities for the GW side of thing will, will get sidelined. Um, it is always gonna be the preference of a big pharma company to go with a new chemical entity where they have clear intellectual property. Um, and 
don't have as much worry that somebody's going to come up with a generic set of X, uh, which actually is impossible, I believe. Um, but, you know, there's always going to be the piggybacking effect. Um, they'd be making a serious mistake if they sideline GW and the people there with the expertise uh, and the experience uh, over the course of now more than 20 years on doing this. So uh, again, it remains to be seen. I hope that uh, uh, the folks at GW will have free reign to do what they do best, but they've got a pipeline that's hardly been tapped. Um, again, without giving away any secrets, I would just say that uh, when I left at the end of 2014, uh, my feeling was there was a tremendous amount uh, yet to be done. Uh, so the potential pipeline of GW is the potential uh, pipeline of cannabis therapeutics, which is still vast. Uh, thank you, Ethan. Thank you, everyone, for that wonderful discussion. And thank you, Ethan, for being such a good sport about getting peppered with questions. Um, it's so awesome to have you here to discuss uh, this news. So moving on to our Final story for the popular science, the non-peer-reviewed section, we're going to discuss a story out of Forbes entitled Psychedelic Toads Pushed to the Limit, Conservationists Urge Synthetic 5-MeO-DMT Option. So the Sonoran Desert Toad is basically going to be added to the threatened species. It's facing extinction. It's being captured, you know, tons of them and then milked for their venom so that people can inject or eat it or consume it to get a experience uh, from 5-MeO-DMT produced on the frog that lasts anywhere from a few minutes to, to maybe an hour. Um, and, and a lot of people have been pursuing this because of its therapeutic effects can catapult users into states of oceanic bliss and feelings of unity with all living things. And nothing says unity uh, with all living things like driving them to extinction. So we're approaching a crossroads here. We have two roads. One is a, one universe where this interesting uh, psychedelic fauna continues to evolve and maybe diversify over the decades, creating new psychedelic compounds. And another one is where it's licked out of existence by tourists and psychonauts. Researchers, conservationists have urged people to pursue synthetic 5-MeO-DMT. Research has even shown that in the brain, the brain activity is not different, whether it's a toad venom extract or you know, what we might call equivalent cannabis, a whole plant extract versus the synthetic entity, which is kind of a unique finding when typically we work at look at extracts versus single agents. Now, uh, Dr. Clemens, I'd like you to sort of take first crack at this story. Um, what's your response um, to the sort of exploitation of psychedelic fauna um, do you see, do you think it's time we branch out to see sponges and ants and other things that could have psychedelic potential? Um, do you think the synthetic 5-MeO-DMT is a good solution? What's your, what are your thoughts here? So my first thought was this puts a whole new perspective on you got to kiss a lot of toads before you get your prints. So um, maybe that's where that, this whole thing is, is, is coming from this, to this whole toad looking thing. Um, you know, as a, as a vegan, I don't like to see the extinction or peril of any living organism. And so it is a, a cause for concern for sure. But uh, with a, a hat tip to my colleague, Dr. Russo, um, you know, I'm all about a whole plant extract as well. And so I have a question 
as to whether or not the research truly does bear out about you know, a, a synthetic or biosynth way of making 5-MeO-DMT is really the same or not. And I'm a neophyte in the psychedelic world, so I'm going to have to pass this on to someone else. But that's a, my question. I, I really don't know this. And that's a great point, uh, Dr. Kimless. Um, but, you know, we're lucky enough to be joined by someone on the podcast who has a background in environmental science. So, David, I want to get your response to this article. But first, one of the things I wanted to maybe throw out there to put in your brain while you're responding is, okay, maybe people aren't, maybe they stop capturing the frogs in the net. They just catch the frog, milk some venom out of it. And then they throw the toad back into the into its environment. That could even be disruptive too, because if you don't put it back in the same place, maybe it's not in the same environment, but around its friend and its food sources. Um, just share with us your thoughts here as a sort of a classically trained environmental scientist. Yeah, so um, you know, you kind of remind me of you, you see the stories in Yellowstone where uh, somebody sees a really you know it's cold out and uh, they pick up the the baby deer and they throw it in the back of the car and bring it to the ranger station and say, "Look, I, I saved this cold deer." And it what do they do? They euthanize it. Why? Because it smells like a human. Because it will never be picked up by its family again. And so, you know, that's a component of it. And so, yeah, before my stint in cannabis, uh, finding my way here, you know, my classical training was in geology and environmental science. So that's a whole nother story. But um, you know, one of the gentlemen I learned about during my studies was a, uh, his name was Aldo Leopold. And he did a lot of research on the North Rim of the Grand Canyon. Uh, he was actually born in the Midwest. And this was around the turn of the century in the 1900s. And you know, one thing that he said uh, was, you know, conservation is a state of harmony between man and land. And recognizing that balance, um, you know, there's things like Gaia theory um, and, and other kind of symbiotic understandings of how we live in this entire ecosystem. So, um, you know, it's, I'm almost embarrassed to say I lived in Arizona for grad school and I don't recall, you know, I remember hearing about the Colorado River toad, but, um, you know, it's crazy how those things can happen. And, you know, we've made woolly mammoths go extinct and lots of other, you know, animals because we didn't realize what we were doing. So um, I'm glad it's on the radar. I don't have too much positive hope for um, our society to capture this ahead of time, but maybe we'll learn from our mistakes. I guess we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I, I hope so, David. Maybe we, we will learn from our mistake and, you know, thank goodness this toad is not delicious as well as psychedelic <laughs> or we'd be in some serious trouble. <laughs> Um, Nigam, I want to give you a chance to respond. You know, we have discussed uh, earlier this week, you know, we discussed sponges, ants, fish, all these sort of psychedelic fauna in response to the story. But, you know, what are you thinking about it today? Yeah. So I actually wanted to share a couple thoughts with the audience. So what Jahan's referring to is we've been doing this, um, uh, high level psychedelic science, uh, room on clubhouse with friend of the show, Del Potter, and uh, we had reviewed this uh, on, on Monday live as well. And some really interesting things came up. Uh, one is that Dell shared with us that there is a very easy synthetic route to making 5-MeO-DMT. He assured us it's very easy. So, And then to, to go back to uh, what Deb was saying, and then this is a common question that comes up, and not just about this uh dmt but about uh cbd about thc about other you know cannabinoid or, or psychedelic molecules like the question is is the synthetic the same as the natural and 
It, it can be a complex question, but I would say the short answer is that if uh, a trained analytical chemist with the proper instrumentation, mass spectrometry, NMR, uh, these kind of things, says, yes, it's the same, then I, I think molecularly we, we can trust that. And so in that vein, um, and, and I'll express kind of the same thing that I said on the live session um, recently was that I, I really think it's just kind of... Uh, counterintuitive that typically you think of the psychedelics movement and these psychonauts so you know so some people like this term call themselves that it's these substances are supposed to make you more in tune with other people with other living beings with mother earth with nature so it's it, it almost is like shocking to me it's hard for me to grip or understand that irony. yeah exactly thank you dave like the irony like um they're it, force they're licking these toads out of existence to reach the spiritual thing that should help you understand that you shouldn't lick toads out of existence so maybe it's like a, a one-time thing you lick the toad and then you stop milking them but uh one <laughs> i'm going a little off the rails there but one final thought that i'll that i'll share that i did pick up from this article um when i was reading it again b before this recording is that they kind of alluded to the fact that there's a lot of end users who like the the substance itself, and there seems to potentially be like an intermediary kind of entity or person that's capturing these toads, that is extracting or as Jay Antos out milking this venom. I'm not exactly sure how it works. They're getting the venom off the toad, right? And um, and then they are collecting it. They're drying it. I guess um, there's different ways to use this. People smoke the dried venom, I suppose. I, I'm not I'm not personally experienced with this process, but um, anyway. So I was just tossing that out there too. We're being critical, and I'm personally being critical of psychonauts using this and ex you know driving toads extinct. But it may be a simple fact of people don't understand the supply chain. People seek this experience. They know someone who has this substance, and and they go for it. But I guess the lesson learned here, just like with with other things, maybe cannabis from before, maybe other illicit substances from before that are now becoming legal slowly and slowly. As a consumer, it's kind of your responsibility to think, where did this come from? Was it ethical? Can I create it for myself in my community without breaking ethics along the supply chain? So I would just encourage, you know, end users to, to think about that kind of stuff. Great points uh nigam I, I really think that as a consumer maybe the first step is understanding the supply chain um but that you know if most people learned where magic mushrooms came from uh you know they would be like it grows on cow manure like maybe they wouldn't be inclined to use it but you know definitely the more information you have the more informed decision maybe a sustainable decision uh ethan i'd love to get your thoughts on this before we go to the break and sure. go into rapid fire science is it time to branch out into different psychedelic fauna or is, you know, what's your response? Well, sure. I think that it's worthy of investigation, um, you know, beyond Bufo alvarius, which I found out has been renamed as Incilius alvarius. Uh, there are other psychoactive toads, uh, such as Phylomedusa bicolor, uh, which has in it deltorphin, which is 1,200 times more powerful uh, as an analgesic as compared to morphine. Uh, but back to the toad, I'm gonna contradict myself and say that um, in this instance, uh, despite uh, my fondness of the entourage, 
Um, I'm an environmentalist. Um, this is an endangered species. It's not a renewable resource. And even if uh, its life is preserved, uh, we're inducing a lot of toad PTSD through this activity. Uh, you know, this is an basically uh, somewhat endangered species. Um, I can say that uh, 5-methoxy dimethyltryptamine is uh, psychedelic sort of without the visuals. I don't think it's gonna appeal uh, even to a, a lot of psychonauts. Um, I think that we need evidence from various people who've done both to really honestly assess whether there's a difference. Um, and again, I wouldn't encourage anyone uh, to try 5-MeO-DMT particularly. Uh, at the time I tried it, uh, more than 20 years ago, it wasn't a scheduled drug, although it probably could be considered illegal under the Analogs Act. Um, but I think that there are better ways to get high uh, if that's people's aims on, uh, you know, leave the toad alone. I, I love it. It's great points, everyone. And we're going to take a short break. But listener, I want you to think about where do psychedelic toads get their psychedelic therapy if they're suffering from anxiety, depression, and PTSD? It's an issue we're facing. We'll be right back with Rapid Fire Science. Hi, I'm Dr. Monica Vialpondo, founder and CEO of Via Innovations, where we create canvas products designed by nature, enhanced through science. Check out our website at via-innovations.com. And we're back with Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about peer-reviewed scientific articles. So our first article is entitled Cannabis and Health Research, Rapid Progress Requires Innovative Research Designs. And it is published by the official journal of the Professional Society for Health Out Economics and Outcome Research. Um, one of these authors, uh, the first author is, is Kent Hutchinson. The second author is Cinnamon Bidwell. Cinnamon Bidwell has published a lot of stuff in the field, especially in difficult areas to do research, such as neurocognition and there's tons of methodological issues here. And she certainly has published some policy stuff as well. Um, and so it was really cool to see this study, which starts to say, you know, that, hey, we have these rapid changing cultural and political and legal landscapes. The scientific literature on cannabis does not adequately inform public policy, or at least it's difficult to extract that information. And, and medical decision-making, harm reduction approaches, these are all really difficult to suss out in the literature. And this article lays out goals for perhaps creating a more nuanced understanding, um, suggesting innovative research designs for rapid development of a meaningful knowledge base. And so, you know, what's interesting is, is you know, David, as I'm sure you're familiar with traveling around the states, you know, two thirds of the U.S. population lives in a place where they can buy cannabis as an adult. So you know, and, and there's lots of diverse and potent cannabis products. And so when you saw this article about, you know, medical cannabis outpacing the research and questions about how did it get so far ahead of the evidence base and, you know, even their sort of 
tables and figures about concentrates, edibles, and flowers sales. I mean, they really seem to make a case that there needs to be, you know, certain types of studies on these products. But I would like to just, you know, get your response uh, to this article. Yeah, you know, it, it almost kind of goes back, I'll just point back to what Ethan said earlier in terms of, you know, the GW process and that, you know, uh, what was the word, the term used, you know, just good data, right? Like we need the data and we can access it. Folks are just a little fearful of how to go about it and what that looks like. Um, and this this study just makes it so obvious that we lack that without getting into the politics of it, right? Um, you know, I'm reminded of a story of a good good friend and colleague, um, two people, one uh, gentleman who's an advisor that's going through the University of Maryland's, uh, you know, master's in medical cannabis science and therapeutics. And, you know, the one of the biggest takeaways that he's always uh, reminding me is the disconnect between policy and science. And it's so apparent, right, is in every state where there's really no consideration for policy or, you know, driven by science. And, um, you know, I don't, I could expand on that for, I could probably, yeah, go way too far about that. So I'll, I'll stop that there and point to one other thing, which is, um, you know, I've seen some folks get creative and I don't know if it was the same um, authors or not, but I'm reminded of a, a emergency medicine podcast I listened to one of my good friends uh, when she was going through grad uh, medical school uh, invited me to this talk uh, from UC Health in, in uh, the Denver area. And they actually set up a mobile lab, an analytical lab around the corner from a dispensary. They said, look, we can't provide you the product, but you can go there. We can suggest what you purchase as a medical patient. <laughs> And you come back in, you consume the product, you smoke the joint, whatever it is, then you come in and we'll do all the tests on you. And we can see, you know, the onset effect and how it, how it affects you. And, you know, we're getting really, really creative there, which we need to do because of the lack of, you know, access and everything that this article points out. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's an ongoing issue. Thank you, David. You're right. You know, we have to get creative. And, and Deb, you know, you're a CMO and you're looking at clinical studies looking at you know creating a, a creating products that have proven efficacy um, and you know this article says conducting randomized controlled trials on state market cannabis is impossible and it makes a recommendation for phase four research which they they say is critical for drug development and can kind of include comparative effectiveness and cost effectiveness research. Could you share some insight on this approach? Is this a similar approach that, that you're taking when, when investigating, you know, state market cannabis products, medical cannabis products? Um, please uh, share us your response to this article. So um, I think holistically, this article is right. We need more research. Everybody agrees with that. I like the idea that they're looking at uh, methodologies for looking at observational studies and actually call it observational studies and not anecdotal studies, so to, to boost the importance of it. But I think the tone is quite flippant in, its, in, in, in the way it's written in the sense that it was saying, oh, well, this is really easy to do and we can quickly implement, you know, for example, blood measurements, for example, and they're cheap. Nobody's funding this stuff. Usually, you know, companies, small private companies, one that I'm, I'm working with, is self-funded and as streamlined, as creative as we're trying to be, this stuff is really expensive. And so I, I, I was sort of disappointed in the sense that they are making this out to be 
quite simple to go ahead and let's just draw these blood, you know, metabolites, and we can measure it down to one, you know, nanogram per ml, which is true, we should be able to do that. But it's not readily available. And it's not cheap. And private companies are not interested in funding that when they can make money selling stuff for the most part. And um, investment companies are not interested in funding these researches, even though everyone agrees that more research is is needed. You know, there's ways of looking at um, state-run programs if you have a, a, a legal license to grow, process, and dispense, and you can sort of guide patients to, to do what you want them to do and ask them to qu take questions, which is to answer questions about their experiences. But again, it's expensive and it's not as easy as this article uh, leads to believe. Easier written than done, I guess. Um, <laughs> so Ethan, I'd love to get your response to the these blood tests and their importance, but in order to shade that comment a little bit, I'm gonna read a quote that I'd like uh, you know, you think about this is directly from the article quote it is becoming increasingly clear that the degree of exposure to specific cannabinoids and the ratios of particular cannabinoids to each other may alter the acute and longer term effects of cannabis um i, I was almost surprised they had to write that but maybe it's because there isn't a lot of blood tests included in research just objectively speaking you know i look at neurocognitive papers they don't confirm exposure or that people are using it but your response, please. Well, uh, it's sort of a nod to the entourage effect idea, but I would expound on uh, Deb's excellent foundation, my cousin, um, and say that uh, it's counterproductive uh, to be looking at blood tests. There's no correlation that's really useful, particularly with THC. Uh, between serum levels and uh, patient's reaction, whether it be in symptom reduction, degree of intoxication, et cetera, because you're not measuring what's in the brain. These are high, highly lipophilic molecules, and they're just the correlations are not there. They've tried to establish some, uh, say, between CBD and anticonvulsant efficacy, but it's not there. It's not diphenylhydantuin. Uh, where you've got a clear therapeutic range and a toxic range. Uh, so I, I think that was a misguided attempt. I'd just go on to say that um, I was disappointed in their suggestions because I didn't think they didn't, went far enough in terms of study design. Uh, we should go back to a valid technique called the N of one study, uh, where basically early studies in uh, the GW uh, development program, they used a high THC extract, a high CBD extract, the two together, what we now call Sativex versus placebo and cycled people through them and looked at their reactions and their adverse event profiles. Unfortunately, I have on good authority uh, from one of the world's leading experts uh, on study design that the FDA will never accept any of one of one studies. Um, uh, as, uh, towards uh, regulatory approval. And that's a shame because it mo more closely mirrors what we as physicians do in practice. If Mrs. Jones come in, comes in and the medicine you gave her last month didn't work for her pain, you try something else. 
Uh, so it's more experiential and I think would be every bit as valid as a randomized control trial because it can be blinded and there are, is a placebo control involved. Secondly, it, they didn't mention randomized withdrawal. The pivotal study on Sativex and spasticity uh, was a randomized withdrawal. So people were told that um, you will get Sativex at some point, but they didn't say when. So everyone started on Sativex and after a month, they took the patients who had a significant reduction in spasticity with their multiple sclerosis um, and then they randomized them. Half the people got the same number of sprays of Sativex a day going forward, and half got the same number of sprays of placebo going forward. And there was then a marked divergence. Uh, the people on placebo got worse with their spasticity, and the people who had Sativex uh, continued to improve. Um, now, that doesn't always work. The same technique was used in a cancer pain study, but again, because patients were too sick uh, at initiation, it didn't show clinical efficacy. Um, so there are plenty of ways to do this, but there's always the issue of almost any inhaled product, uh, it's gonna overshoot on the, the psychoactivity uh, and really interfere with the possibility of blinding. Uh, so that it will remain a bugaboo. Uh, and again, not mentioned in the article, um, but uh, there are creative ways to deal with this. It's just, they're not being pursued uh, to any extent um, out there uh, on the research front, I'm afraid. Mm. Thank you, Ethan. So to close out this article, I'm gonna go to you, Nigam. And, and one of the things, now you're welcome to comment on anything, but one of the things that taught me it's strange about this article was looking at uh, you know figure two which shows North American cannabis spending and I guess this includes Canada as well because in 2017 it's like 12 billion dollars then you scroll down you look at concentrates edibles and flour it only adds up to 1.2 billion dollars so what's the other six billion that people are spending stuff on is it rolling papers I guess I mean I don't know, but maybe that doesn't include the Canadian market or some other markets and that maybe the data wasn't available for all those products. But but that aside, um, that their market data is, is a little interesting. Um, what's your response to this article? Do you like how they put it together? Do you it leave you with more questions? Is this something you can go to a client who's developing a product and be like, yeah, do some observational phase four research? Yeah, so... <laughs> Well, no, I, it's hard. So I'll share a few things. One is that uh, I thought there was um, a really good point in the conclusion of this paper that said, this is where we're here now. And without major intervention or major change, it's just going to get worse because there's more new product types coming out all the time. And, you know, there's these minor cannabinoids coming on the market. We're still missing regulation from the Fed in that regard. Some states have different regulations. So uh, one thing that the article did well is it made the point that the expanse of access as well as options for actual products are just running exponentially faster than the research side. So I think that's like a huge takeaway. The other thing um, is that I have to agree with exactly what Deb said, that there's a big issue here. Well, it goes back to what Deb said on this comment and what Ethan was saying at the very beginning of the show, that 
um, this kind of thing, you need you need money. You need money to do this research, to do clinical trials. It's not cheap. So who has the money? Well, people who have the money are the ones who think they're going to get into the FDA pipeline. And then what that's forcing is kind of a bifurcation and the people who want to go that FDA pipeline are getting the funding, but those aren't the people who are approaching it as Ethan had recommended to use the whole plant, to use the, um, you know, not necessarily this farmer route. So anyways, um, I, I'm not really saying anything novel, but I'm just backing up some of the, the, the major points that the paper made as, that also kind of uh, shown through in our conversation today. Thank you, Nigam. You know, I, I'm going to self-correct here one second. You must always be sure to read your figures completely whenever you're analyzing them. And uh, the reason there was a price difference was because the figure about the products is um, from just the state of Colorado versus North America. But David, since you're you know familiar with Colorado and brought that to my attention, <laughs> I would like to say... Does, you know, they're, the way they're looking at the sales, the breakdown, concentrates, edibles, flowers, with flowers, uh, products, the inflorescence of cannabis um, being the most, the leader of sales, does that represent the nation? Do you think the average, national average, or is this, you know, breakdown of concentrate, you know, flowers being number one, concentrates being two, and edibles being three, you know, is that just, yeah. what would you say to that? Oh, that's a good question. And I'm, trying to recall, you know, my, I'll stop my head what the data is nationally. I know it exists somewhere. I've, it's been a while since I've looked at it. Um, you know, BDSA or BDS analytics is a really good place to go to, to pull that data. Um, you know, but it's interesting because every market's different, right. In terms of you know, uh, Florida, for example, they didn't allow flower um, up until about two years ago. Um, of course they have a vertical kind of semi-monopoly, uh, you know, very strict, market, um, you know, getting the data in California and Canada is really interesting because there's still a lot, well, actually nationally, there's still a lot of illicit market. So I'd say that's fairly representative. Um, it's the best data we've got, but, um, you know, it's obviously it's growing. And that was what $1.5 billion in 2017. We hit two points. Uh, we exceeded $2 billion in 2020. So um, folks kept themselves very, very um, <clears throat> dialed up and dosed in uh, during the pandemic this past year. Dialed up and dosed in. <laughs> and speaking of being dialed up and dosed in, we're going to go to our second and final peer-reviewed article for this section before we take a break and play a little 20-question style game. Um, so our next article is, is a preprint article. That is, this is a version that was posted in February 2021, um, was not certified by peer review, uh, but basically, this company, BioRix V, or however you say it, um, basically paid to kind of make this preprint available. So it's very interesting. Um, it's entitled Cannabinoids is a No Go While Cancer Patient is on Immunotherapy, semicolon. But is, is it safe to use psychedelics during cancer immunotherapy? Um, and it's published by a group in Israel. Now, you all know that uh, my feelings about some of the research coming out of Israel, it tends to be uh, a little sloppy, it seems, a little too much hype and not too, you know, I, I would say if it was, if you were ordering a dish at a restaurant, their research is the weak sauce that comes with your food. It's not um, very exciting, but they do ask provocative questions. Um, so the use of psychedelics, you know, by cancer patients is pretty well documented. The use of cannabis 
uh, by patients is pretty well documented. But they're making a case here that maybe um, it, maybe it's not a good idea to use these for certain types of treatment. Um, and they use a cell model to kind of show, okay, well, what happens? Okay, you use psilocybin, cubensis, you use LSD, you can see some effects on breast cancer cell lines. You can see some effects um, on tumor, val tumor volume with mice. Um, but uh, what happens when you combine these cancer treatments? Again, these are preliminary results. Um, but, you know, I wanted to ask, you know, Ethan, you've definitely talked a lot about the immune modulating properties of cannabis. Um, this article has been making the rounds on social media and, and people seem to be responding a lot to it. You know, everyone, anything, any, it seems like anything that comes out of Israel gets a lot of, gets a lot of press, but um, sh should I lighten my criticism of this article or should I be excited? What, what are your thoughts on what they're trying to say? Well, here? I, I'm with you on this one. I, I'm really critical. Um, first of all, let's put this in context. When do people use psychedelic therapy for cancer? It most often is when they're terminal. There really isn't any conventional intervention that they can pursue. And it's to deal with existential issues of mortality and anxiety related to that. Um, and it's usually a one or a few times thing. Um, and it doesn't in any way uh, reflect the, the situation of the, this study. Um, I think the doses that they used, I can't explain. Uh, so there's like a uh, less than tenfold, diff uh, I'm sorry. Um, LSD is much, much, much more potent than psilocybin. And we, we don't see a big, big difference in the doses they used. Plus they're dosing this five days a week in these animals. That's not the way that uh, people use psychedelics when they have cancer. Uh, to me, it's conjectural at best. And I would just say in general, I don't like the idea of preprints. They get a lot of publicity before they've been through the proverbial process. For those of us who have to submit articles and get them through peer review, I really object to it. And uh, this is a case in point. I think it's too preliminary. It's conjectural, it's artificial, and uh, <laughs> I'm not happy with it. Yeah, Ethan, I, I'm glad you said that. I, I'm not happy with it either. I'm glad someone's asking these questions, but the way they've pulled it off, it seems like a play um, versus science. Um, but, you know, Nigam, um, you know, you're a math guy. You're always commenting on N numbers and studies and, and dosing on this podcast. Um, share some of your insights on this so-called research. Yeah, so uh, I'm really happy that Ethan brought up the potency thing. That jumped out to me to the point where I was doing kind of some napkin equivalency math um, prior in the episode and i'll share with the audience what i learned and, and feel free to for to check this and, and send us an email if i'm wrong but i think i'm right is that the as ethan uh shared the dosing for psilocybin is in milligrams like therapeutic dose we're talking 25 30 milligrams is kind of this like accepted range uh for lsd the the therapeutic dose is like a hundred micrograms so we're talking you know an order of magnitude uh less or more so anyways um quick napkin math the psilocybin dose that they're giving to these mice 
is like a hundred times less potent than you would give to a human for a therapeutic dose now and that's just based on body weight i looked up how much does a mouse weigh <laughs> i just did the math right um now I'll, i'm aware as as everyone is like microdosing is a thing but they also didn't clarify what is the mechanism what is the reason for this dose are we trying to microdose them are we trying to macrodose them they didn't explain right so um back to the numbers the psilocybin is a hundred times less than the therapeutic dose for a mammal uh the LSD is 40 times more than the dose. So, uh, you know, so one of our friends of the show would call this a heroic dose of LSD for this mouse. So anyways, I think the listeners kind of like sensing my, you know, why I'm laughing in this moment. It, it's just like Ethan said, it just doesn't really, you can't draw meaningful conclusions off, off stuff like this. Um, another thing, uh, just a couple other shout outs, um, what other cells did they test this on? There's a lot of different kinds of cancer cell lines. Um, also, uh, I didn't even see like replicate numbers in here, and maybe there's supplemental information that I'm not seeing. Final comment, I almost thought it was kind of weird that they even put cannabinoids in the title of this. Like, they're, Are they just doing that to... They, I think they just wanted a paper title that had cannabinoids and psychedelics in it, but they're not... They make... The, the thing they say about cannabinoids in the title isn't really addressed and I don't really appreciate that because I see the title and I, I want to learn. I want to understand what is their point, but they're not really making that point clearly either. Yeah. And, and listener, if you're trying to play the home game and look at this paper that's in the show notes, um, you know, I would draw your attention to figure three, which is written abbreviated F I G subscript, the number three, and then study days is spelt incorrectly. Uh, you know, the old saying, sometimes you and sometimes why they just interchangeably use them, I guess. So another reason why peer review is always important, just the basic readability stuff. So, um, you know, Dr. Deb, I'm going to give you the last uh, chance to comment. Um, you know, feel free to share your thoughts on just psychedelics and cancer or cannabis and cancer. Or, you know, if you, you know, you want to kick this study while it's down, uh, you're more than welcome to. I, um, I'm kicking it while it's down. I was completely confused with this ridiculous five-day dosing with a nod to what Ethan said, that that's not what people um, who are end-of-life are using uh, psychedelics for. It's, I mean, this whole study is bizarre. And the one thing I want to point out is, you know, you see cytotoxicity in a, in a Petri dish. We're not Petri dishes. You see bizarre results, you know, in mice models. We're not mice models either. So, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know what this paper shows other than um, ink and white stuff at the end back background. And again, to what Nigam said, the cannabinoid is a no-go. I'm like delving into this, looking for where the studies are regarding that. And there's, that was it. It's like saying chocolate's a no-go, sugar is a no-go. And then just talking about this, I mean, it's, it's it's insane. But. And there's there's eight whole references to back it up, Deb. So make sure you delve into those. Yeah, and, and, and none of say, yeah. Go ahead. Dave. None of those references, uh, psychedelic or sorry, cannabinoids is is written five times in there. One in the title, one in the abstract, three in the intro, and there's no references to back up their reference of cannabinoids. So it's exactly. like, what what's going on here? And they didn't even put their full affiliation. 
Probably because they were so busy being proud of their research, they forgot to oh, put out how to get in contact did, with them. Did we did we kick it enough while it was down? We didn't, oh, we didn't need to be so hard. I want a karate kid sweep its legs, <laughs> then dance around. Um, but again, you know, it's it's in process. But again, a listener, beware if you're if you're tracking this study. It is not at a level um, where it is acceptable. It's at the level of a poster presentation at a research conference. This is not in the in the form or even supported enough to be used to make any clinical decisions, policy decisions. It's right now just sort of a oh hum wow okay well go go finish your work. That's a good progress check. Um, so you know we always uh, hope research can translate, and I've never seen. The research team works so hard at um, working against that. All right, so we're going to take a short break and come back with a game. At Marku and Aurora, we understand that finding the right source for cannabis education can be a real challenge. But imagine this. You name the university-level graduate school course you want to take, and we'll design and teach it to you, specifically suited for your needs. Fill out the contact form at marku-aurora.com, that's M-A-R-C-U-A-R-O-R-A.com, to tell us what you would like to learn about. And we're back with today's game. Today, our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific thought with one of our favorite games called Where's Valancourt? This is a game where Clue meets Where's Waldo meets 20 questions, where we try to guess the geographic location, state, the type of facility, vertically integrated cultivation dispensary, so on. And the product, maybe it's a whole flower product, maybe it's a pre-roll, maybe it's a lozenge. And here to play Where's Valancourt is David Valancourt. Good afternoon, good day, good morning, or good night, wherever you live and the time that you are listening to this exciting uh, game. So as uh, Jehan kind of introduced for me, um, I, I travel quite a bit um, safely during the pandemic these days um, to make sure that producers of cannabis products are uh, safe, consistent um, as much as possible uh, without going into that diatribe. Um, yeah, where where am I? Where have I been most recently? Can I, can I kick it off? Can I ask you a question, Dave? Who's going to kick it off? Bring it on. Oh, man. Okay. Um, was it in a state with adult use, aka recreational cannabis? Ooh, it was not in a state with the answer is no. Okay, well, that knocks some off. Ooh, good question. That's um, a good start. All right, was it in a um, so my question is, was it in a hemp only state? You know what I mean? Like, uh, like Texas. <laughs> yeah, it was not in or, one of, or one of the states. Not a, not in a Dakota or something like that. So it's not a hemp it? only state. N correct. Mm, it's okay. Not a hemp only state. Ooh. Okay. Um, right, I got to think for a second here. Um, so far, we know was. It, Don't look at your map. Ethan or, unless you, Ethan or Deb, you want to jump in here for you have a you have a question. Was it uh, traditionally a red state or a blue state? 
That's actually, oh man, I hope I don't give it away, but it's um, <clears throat> traditionally red. So they're angry all the time. <laughs> um, so traditionally a red state, it's not a hemp state. It doesn't have adult use. Fascinating. Um, but I'm thinking it's like got to be, so now it's like a red state that has medical, I think is what I'm hearing. So what's the, okay, but we can't guess till five. So okay, I'm just tossing. Yeah, so that we're out there. we're at question number three. Um, I might have one unless Deb, you have a a yes or no for David. Is it is it on the Atlantic Ocean? It does touch the Atlantic Ocean. Yes. Hey, I think uh, I know. Okay, but I oh, but we have to remember it's not just location. We have to find out like the facility yep. and what he was making too. So okay. I, I have a question, Dave. Um, was it in Georgia? No. Oh, bummer. Not Georgia. Not Alabama. <laughs> Unless you consider the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the Atlantic. No. So that's is that five or is that six? That's that six. six. Okay. So we made two geography guesses. That's good. That's good. So I'm going to take it in a different direction. Um, was this a vertically integrated facility? Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's like how they have everything going on there, I guess, to mm -hmm. ask the follow-up. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, I Dave, did you say I can't look at a map? I think I can look at a map, right? That's fair. Yeah, I think it's an open book. Okay. I, you can look at a map. Okay. Is so, it Every operator is every operator in that state multi uh, um, vertical, vertically. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Interesting. I'm like looking at what states touch the ocean, and then I'm going to make another geographic. So, guess. so real quick, um, it's in a state uh, that does not have adult use. It's not a hemp only state. It's traditionally a red state that touches the Atlantic. Um, it's not Georgia. It's not Alabama. It is at a vertically integrated facility, but every operator is vertical. Is required, is required to be vertical. Um, I'm going to add some, to something. Yeah. I'm gonna say, is this product uh, orally consumed that you were looking at at this facility? So we were focused on the orally consumed, um, okay. but it's okay. not. Yeah. Uh, 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 it's not what? Uh, oh, no extra information. Wait, no, but... I'm sorry. I, I lied. No, it is not orally consumed. Hmm. Ooh. It is not ingested. Ooh. It is not ingested. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Who wants to ask question 10? I'm going to guess Florida. Ding, ding, ding. We've got Florida. Okay. So we know it's Florida. We got a vertically integrated facility, mm -hmm. oh, not an orally consumed. You know, I, I have a, I have an inkling, but I'm not sure. Wait, to, to clarify, Dave, when we say orally consumed, so, so there's like to me, there's like three things. So there's like inhalation, mm -hmm. then there's orally consumed, meaning that I'm like taking it, I'm swallowing something, it's going through my stomach, and then there is uh, sublingual, right, which is kind yeah. of like a different thing. So. Um, when you say it's not orally consumed, you're saying it's not like an edible that I'm swallowing and going through my gut. Correct. Let me clarify. It's not ingested. It's not ingested. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Dave, were you making um, a, a tincture or a tablet for sublingual application 
at a vertically integrated thing in Florida? Good question. No, it was not. A but that's all wow, we need. We just need the product now. I think we have everything else, yeah. right? Does it, yeah. Does it go on the surface of your skin? No. It's not Ooh. topical either. Then it's hey, we're uh, at lucky uh, thirteen right now. So it's a vape pen. Hey, did it I win the game? Pen. Did I win? Okay, okay. Let me say wait, the whole wait, thing. You got it. You got it. You, you have have to put it all Let me say the whole thing. Okay. Um, my guess, my formal guess, is that David Valancourt was in Florida at a vertically integrated company's uh, manufacturing facility doing a GMP assessment for vape pens. That is correct, Nigam. And wow. if I can give you credit and just say, why did we go through all these questions and what does this mean? Well, I think the takeaway is cannabis is not just cannabis. There's a lot of subset products and every state has very different regulations. So understanding where in that matrix of product types and considerations for safety, um, there's, a, there's a lot that really needs that goes into that. Excellent point. David, thank you so much. That's all right. I just had a quick question to wrap. Dave, I think that's the, at least the second time I won this game. Like, we need to get a little plaque or something. I want to get, like, a Where's Valancourt <laughs> trophy cabinet to display, you know? I, I want to like create it. the home game where we actually have a board game and little cards and, and like, maybe, a, like, a con like, it might look like the Risk board, but with marijuana leaves or something. <laughs> it's, um, I can see that, like, the little, uh, like, the little facilities on the map for, like, you know, I, it's, like, Risk, but instead of, like, war, it's just, like, buyouts. It's, like, I, I'm going to, it's, like, Monopoly times Risk times Can cannabis in america right something, something and then like you that. win the game by patenting comfy chairs you know or, or do you lose uh, the game or do you get kicked right. out you know? out of the game yeah do you lose right. the acceptance of the culture that created you you know that's patented right? that we've patented the game now nobody can do this in comfortable chairs in a non-therapeutic like location right do you, do you guys think i could patent the process of losing the acceptance of the culture can i patent that <laughs> I'm going to try. Only and if you're very specific. And then I'm going to sell it to a, a known entity. Okay, I'll, I'll stop. It has I'll to have maybe. specific protocols, uh, Nigam. You'd have to publish preprint articles. That's <laughs> <and laughs> <laughs> oh, probably the lead thing. Okay. All right, listener. Thanks for hanging with us. That's our show for today. Thank you for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And each episode has custom artwork made by Selena Lee and her colleagues. Be sure to check out Selena Lee's artwork. She does an amazing series on watermelons. It is fantastic. 